You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Good morning again. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Will you pray with me as we prepare to hear God's word? Father, we come to you this morning. Worship was so powerful and meaningful for me. I'm sure for many of us here. And as we open your word together, God, we know that you are present with us. We ask that you would speak to us. For those whose hearts are warmed to you, Lord, that you would continue to throw logs on the fire. But Lord, I also want to pray for people here who are struggling, who are doubting, who they're they're hearing the songs that we're singing and they're not connecting at all. Lord, I pray that this word this morning would be a word of comfort and challenge. But more than that, Lord, we know that you go before us and I pray that you would do a great work, that you are a God who loves, who rescues, who redeems, who restores, who heals. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that in our midst for our good, for your glory, and for this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and the past two weeks we've spent talking about the mission that Jesus gave his disciples and in turn all of us to tell others about him. And as God would have it in his intriguing sense of humor, after I finished preaching last Sunday, uh, I had two different people reach out to me from my past that I haven't talked to in a very long time, both of whom I shared the gospel with, some I spent months and years sharing the gospel with, um, but they were always closed off to it, and I finished these sermons, and then, then I get two messages, both of whom expressing real interest in the Christian faith, which was so cool to have happen. You know, it was like, amen. Um, and so I've had these conversations, pressed in, and both of them, they're, like I, they're getting older and they, they're just feeling things that they haven't, wrestling with questions they haven't thought about. And I said, I need to believe in God, but I have so many questions and I have so many doubts. And they'll fire all their questions. And I mean, they're always the best questions, the easiest ones, just joking. They're always really hard questions that they put before you. And uh, can you help me with these questions? And I've learned that my first response these days is, I have doubts too. Um, and you're in good company if, if you have doubts or if you have questions. And it throws them off, but I'm convinced, and this has really shaped how we do church here, I'm convinced that one of the greatest obstacles to real spiritual growth is a lack of honesty. And I'm convinced that oftentimes in the church we can actually perpetuate uh, this, like we don't talk about the real stuff. We'll talk about the truths that we cling to and we claim but we're afraid to be honest about what's actually going on 
in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own walks with God. We feel this need to perform. This is nowhere more true than the issue of doubt. Doubt is something that I, I believe is universally experienced by every Christian at some point in varying degrees. But I don't think we talk about it enough. And I think when we do experience it, we don't know what to do in response to it. Uh, other than, you know, depending on your tradition, maybe it's just repent. That's what you do when you have doubts. You just repent, feel awful, and then try to move forward. We don't have categories. We don't know how to distinguish doubt from unbelief. Because I think those are two very different things. Uh, theologian Alistair McGrath, he notes that unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It's a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. And I think a lot of times we confuse those two. We confuse doubt and unbelief, and sometimes they overlap. And I don't think that all these categories are very neat and tidy, but I do want to say that the Bible speaks to our doubts. And I think the text we're looking at today is one of the greatest case studies on doubt in the entire Bible. And so that's what we're going to focus on. And we have a really simple outline. Two points. First point, what does John teach us about doubt? Both where it comes from, where it often comes from, how we respond to it. And then the second point, what Jesus teaches us about faith. So what does John teach us about doubt? And what does Jesus teach us about faith? Starting with John and his doubts. The John mentioned here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was related to Jesus. His mom and Jesus' mom, they were probably cousins. They, they definitely knew each other and had some kind of blood relation. Most likely, John and Jesus' childhood were connected. They grew up knowing each other and hearing the, the crazy stories of uh, how Mary got pregnant. And John, he knew that Jesus was from God. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. We see this again and again throughout the Gospels where he says, you know, I'm just the forerunner, like I'm the, I'm the attendant to the bridegroom, he says at one point, but Jesus is the groom and I'm here for him. He says later that Jesus must increase, I must decrease. I mean, this is why John refuses at first to baptize Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy, you should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus says, you do what I say. It's not what he said, but he's like, well, I'm going to tell you what to do. And so John says, okay. And think about this. John, he baptizes Jesus. As Jesus comes out of the water, he's got a front row seat to watch the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And then he got to hear with his own ears the Father declare from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If anyone in the New Testament was going to demonstrate a steadfast, unshakable faith in Jesus, it would be John. And yet, Matthew tells us that when John heard in prison about the, the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, 
are you, are you sure, Jesus, you're the one? We don't know all of the reasons for John's doubt, but there are two clues embedded in the text. The first is that John, who was once leading a thriving preaching ministry in the wilderness, is now in prison. King Herod, who was the Roman-appointed ruler over Israel at the time, he'd actually heard of John's preaching, and so he would go and listen to John, and he liked listening to John until in one of his sermons... John called Herod out for sleeping with his brother's wife. And when he did that, Herod had John thrown into prison. And he's in prison here because of his faithfulness. I don't know if you've ever been mistreated because of your faithfulness. I don't know if you've ever had that, those moments in life where you, you feel like you are... You are walking a life of virtue and consistency, that you're actually doing the, the things that you wish you, you would have been doing a long time ago, but it took years to grow into it. But you're really following the Lord, both with your heart, with your behavior, and then you feel like life gets harder and more confusing. It can stir some doubts. It can be demoralizing, but it can also be disillusioning. What's going on? So I think the first clue of what's going on with John is he's in prison. And then the second clue, also in the text, is when Matthew tells us, he says when John, he says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, that's when he asked him, are you, are you sure you're the one or should we look for another? I don't want you to miss this. There is something about John, or when John heard about the works that Jesus was doing, and the teachings he was giving. So he got a recap of the Sermon on the Mount, and then he heard Jesus is casting out demons, raising the, the dead, giving sight to the blind. John hears all of this, and it doesn't lead him to say, of course he's the Messiah, he's the one we've been longing for. It leads John to saying, uh, are, are you sure that you're the one? Now to understand why, we have to go back a little bit in John's story. Remember John was called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John was kind of, he was a prophet. He was really the prophet's prophet, the last prophet. And so John saw his job as to, you know, to till the ground of people's hearts, to get them ready to turn to God when God showed up. And so John, he had a, a pretty simple message. It was repent and believe, repent and turn. Prepare yourselves for the coming king. And because he was steeped in the, the Old Testament and he knew the prophets, he knew that all of the prophets, there was two, part to every, two parts to every prophetic message. There was the promise of blessing, and there was also a warning of judgment. And so when you read the Old Testament prophets, there will be, talk about the day of the Lord, there will be great things that are coming, but there will also be great warnings of judgment that is coming. Now John, from what we know of him in the Gospels, John seemed to be more comfortable teaching the judgment side of things. Most of his sermons were on this side. They were of judgment and warning. And so we have an excerpt of one of his sermons in Matthew 3, where John says, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He was an intense preacher. The axe is at the root of the tree. There's one who's going to come, and he's going to give blessing. He'll baptize some of you with the Holy Spirit. The rest of you he's going to baptize with fire, and that's not a good thing. That means judgment. He's going to bring about a great division, a great separation between all people. And then John uses this imagery from the harvest of a winnowing fork, which was used, you take hay that you, or wheat that you just harvested, and you would stand on what's called a threshing floor, and you'd throw the wheat in the air, and the grain, which was heavier, would fall down to the threshing floor, and then the husk, the chaff, that would kind of blow away to the side off the threshing floor, and then you'd gather up the grain, you'd take that into the barn, and then the chaff was just used for kindling. And John says that this Messiah, who he's thinking this is Jesus, he's coming with the fork and he's going to start separating people. And the good and faithful, he's going to gather into God's care and safekeeping in the barn. And all of the rebellious, he's going to bundle up like chaff and burn with an unquenchable fire. So John sees... The Messiah is one who's going to bring blessing and judgment, primarily judgment. The problem for John is that Jesus seems to be bringing all of the blessing, but none of the judgment. Jesus is spending all of his time helping and healing people. He isn't bringing the hammer down. I mean, he has a little in his speech, but he isn't bringing the hammer down on the Pharisees and other leaders who are corrupting the religious practices of the day. He doesn't bring fire judgment on the Romans who were occupying the land that God had promised to his people. He isn't even bringing judgment down on the people who have unjustly arrested John. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, he comments on this verse by writing, Jesus is out in the sticks healing sick, insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religio-ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. What is more, John, the propagandist of the New Order, is in prison, and Herod, the embodiment of the oppressive establishment is still on the throne and is in fact about to have John's head. What kind of Messiah is this? That's John's question. See, John, he had this movie reel that would play in his head of who Jesus is, of, of what Jesus should do, do and how John's life should go in response to obeying Jesus. He had this script, you know, that he'd read, he'd written, and he'd, he reads it all the time. This is, this is how my life should go as a follower of Jesus, and this is what Jesus should do. And John's problem is that his life isn't going how he expected it to go, and Jesus isn't doing the kind of works John expected him to do. And I think we're all like John quite often. I think we all in our mind, we have this script that we really want Jesus to read. Like, well, I'll read my part and then you read this part. And it's really, really confusing 
when he doesn't act or respond or do the things that we expect him to do. For John, this leads not just to confusion, but it demoralizes him and really spins him out and puts him in a place of intense doubt, so intense that he sends his disciples. He's open about it. It's not like he sends a private note sealed to Jesus. He's so questioning. His disciples even get to hear. And I'm convinced if you follow Jesus long enough, you're going to experience times of doubt. You're going to experience that time when life doesn't go as you scripted it to go, and Jesus is not the one you thought he was, or at least he's not acting like the way you thought he should act. And so what do we do with our doubts? How do we respond? How do we even understand doubt? I'll tell you, doubt, it's not a virtue. It's never something that's celebrated or honored in Scripture or encouraged. But the Scriptures do often portray doubt with a radical honesty. Even the most faithful of saints in the Bible and in history have gone through seasons of great doubt. Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers of all time. He writes this, he said, Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. So I'm going to say the first lesson, if you're wondering, what do we do when we doubt? Don't be too discouraged is the first lesson. Don't be too discouraged. Even the greatest of saints doubted. It's not a virtue, but doubt doesn't, does not disqualify you from a life with Jesus. The second thing I would say is don't let your doubts go unchecked. That's the second lesson. And we learned this from John. What did John do with his doubt? Took it to Jesus. He starts having these questions He's like, I got to figure this out. And he sends his disciples, go find out. Go ask him some questions. I think this is so important for us because for a lot of us, when we experience doubt, and I mean significant, real doubt, what we tend to do is we tend to move away from Jesus instead of moving towards Jesus. John moves towards him. John goes and asks him questions. We often, instead of opening the word or sitting with trusted friends or mentors in the Christian faith, a lot of times we can isolate ourselves and close ourselves off. The problem is when we do that, we're giving doubt a ton of room to grow, and we're shutting the truth out. You see, doubts, they emerge when there's a dissonance between what we expect and what we experience. And when that happens, there's, uh, I'll do it like this. We have expectations of how life should go. We have the experience of how life goes on this earth under the sovereign rule of God. And there is this gap. So something's going to have to give. Either we give up our expectations and we say, I thought I knew, but I didn't. I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. And we conform our expectations to our experience in God's word. Or we say, we make our experience the definitive thing. And we say, I'm just going to bend what I believe about God to match this experience in this exact moment. So I feel right now like God doesn't care. 
I'm going to hold on to that more than I'm going to hold on to all the promises of Scripture. And then you conform what God's Word says. You distort it to where it matches your experience. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. God's indifferent. We're going to do one or the other. Something has to give. And what John does is he takes it straight to Jesus. And what we need to do is be a people who go straight to the word. Ask for help. Jesus promises that if we ask, if we seek, if we knock, he will respond and he'll answer. So John takes his doubts to Jesus. And Jesus is, Jesus is so kind to John. We didn't read it all. But if you continue reading... I mean, John publicly basically questions Jesus' identity, and Jesus responds with some of the kindest, nicest words he ever spoke about anyone. He doesn't say one negative thing about John, and he actually honors John and shows great compassion to him in the midst of his doubts. J.C. Ryle, he was a preacher in Liverpool in the 1800s. He's a pretty stern guy in a lot of his writings, uh, pretty rigid in a lot of things he said. But in speaking about this text, he said, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. And we see that as John brings his doubts to God, to Jesus, Jesus responds, eager to help. And so do we learn? Doubt doesn't disqualify you. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, take your doubts to him not away from him. That's what John teaches us about doubt. Now, what does Jesus teach us about faith? And this is a hard passage, but it's, it's amazing if you can really press in with it and you can, you can understand what Matthew is teaching us and what Jesus is teaching John here. We're told that Jesus answered John's disciples' question. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So it's kind of funny. Jesus never answers a yes or no question with a yes or no, ever. Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Go and tell John the things that you've seen. And then these things that he lists out are actually the things that we read about in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, all of his wondrous works, that miracles that were demonstrations not just of his power, but there are actually demonstrations of God's promises being fulfilled. Because in every miracle that Jesus performed, there are roots, there are lines that tie back to the Old Testament. And there are a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about, sometimes it's called the day of the Lord, when God's going to bring both blessing and judgment. Sometimes it's, called, it's talked about as the coming of the Messiah or the Son of Man, the Son of God. But there are all of these prophecies, especially in the book of Isaiah, that spoke to the coming of the Messiah. So you have Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 61, another very famous prophecy about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, if you were raised in a culture where you were in the Old Testament every single day, you would recognize this was code language that 
Everyone who spent time in the Old Testament knew this was Jesus saying, of course, I'm who you think, John. Of course, I'm the Messiah. I'm actually doing the works that were prophesied about the Messiah. I am who you think. It's the first thing he's telling John. The second thing, though, is he's saying, but I'm different than you think. And this is where we have to go Bible nerd for just five minutes and then we'll get out. But in all of those Old Testament passages, just like John, whenever it talked about the coming of the day of the Lord, whenever it talked about the Messiah, there was promise of blessing, but there was also warning of judgment. So Isaiah 35, which we just read, the verse before it, prophecy is, behold, your God will come with vengeance, dot, 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 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. So there's fire and there's healing. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. And so when Jesus responds to John's question, he seems to conveniently leave out the hard parts. He doesn't mention the vengeance or the fire. Before coming to Sojourn, I planted a church in Middletown, Ohio. We named it the Oaks, uh, which sounds like a retirement home, uh, which was funny because we were all in our early 20s. People would visit deeply confused about this church, but the name came from Isaiah 61. Spirit of the Lord, Jesus says, upon me, good news to the poor. I'm going to release the captives. I'm going to heal the sick. Uh, and then it talks about the people he's going to form, the church. And he says, they shall be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And that was our vision of who we wanted to be. We wanted to be the oaks of righteousness that were prophesied about. And so we would teach, I would teach on Isaiah 61 a lot, especially as we were starting and casting vision and trying to start this church. And we would go through many series on it. And I always stumbled on that phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Not because I doubt God's just justice or his judgment. I just couldn't find the compelling vision angle of how to work that in to our church plan. And this week we're going to talk about vengeance and what that means for our mission. Uh, but I also didn't want to be a mealy-mouthed preacher who shied away from saying hard things and just tickled people's ears. And so I really wrestled with this Isaiah passage, because it's filled with so much promise, but then there is some, some hard stuff in there. Um, I'm like, can I just skip it? Is that weird to skip it? And then as I'm wrestling through it, I go to Isaiah, or sorry, I go to Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Luke tells us about how Jesus began his public ministry. Jesus' start, his first sermon ever. Luke tells us that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes it. And we're told that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
Like he stopped his sermon right before it gets to in the day of vengeance of our God. This seems to be a pattern with Jesus in his ministry. And it's not because Jesus is denying that there will be a day of judgment. He's really clear in a few places later in chapter 10 of chapter 11 of Matthew, he gives some very clear warnings. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about judgment, but Jesus put the overwhelming emphasis on blessing and mercy and compassion. And when Jesus did talk about judgment, it was always about judgment that was to come in the future. But when Jesus talked about blessing and mercy, it had already arrived with him in the present. See, Jesus, he's telling John with this response, grace and mercy and compassion and blessing have come, but the judgment, it's been delayed. Not that it will never come, but now is not the time for judgment. Now is the time for healing and for helping. Now is the time for rescuing and redeeming and setting people free. I've come to bring good news, John. And it's nothing but good news for everyone. And I just wonder how John heard that. Because he could have thought, well, everyone but me. Because I'm still in prison. You know, as I've been thinking through this text and about the whole idea of doubt, I had a thought. Um, and I just wonder how often our doubts emerge. Like, what, what leads to them? And we have the distance between what we expect and, and what we experience. But I just wonder how often our doubts emerge because God doesn't respond with justice to unjust situations. I wonder how often and how many of our doubts emerge because God doesn't do the righteous, just act in a certain situation that we think he should do. And I wonder if that might not be the cause, the greatest cause, the greatest source of doubt in many of our lives. You know, when you're younger in your faith, and sometimes when you're older, some of it's, how are you wired? What kind of conscience did God give you? Some of you have very, very tender consciences. And so you hear everything is directed right at you. Others of you, I could say your name first and last from the pulpit and call you out, and you would be convinced I was talking about someone else. Like we're... We're just wired differently. But I think for most of us, as we walk and we grow in the Christian faith, when we're younger, we can doubt God's love or his grace or his compassion, especially when we knowingly violate his word and our conscience and we disobey him with our lives. In that moment, after that sin, it's easy to feel like, well, does God still love me? Is he still compassionate towards me? But if you're in a good community, if you're in your word, there are just so many promises in the Bible. Yes, there's no condemnation. We have peace with God. You've got good brothers and friends, hopefully good preaching and good worship that's reminding you. Yes, you might doubt God's love, but you shouldn't doubt his love or his grace for you. That's a source of doubt for some people. But I'm convinced, especially the further along I I get in the Christian faith, so this might just be me, but I don't think it is. 
I think one of the more persistent sources of doubt is when injustice goes unaddressed. I think that's one of the harder forms of doubt. When you see horrible things happen in people's lives, happen in your life, happen in the news, happen in the community. When you look at atrocities and you just think, where are you? Do you not care? Why are you not acting? The kind of doubts that emerge in those situations are not easily dismissed. The kind of doubts that emerge in those situations have roots that grow pretty deep. You can't just pull them up. It's a question of why don't you do something? I mean, that's John's question. Why don't you do something? Look at all of the wicked, narcissistic tyrants who are running the world, and you are not responding. Where are you? Are you the one? And the answer that John gives Jesus is the answer we need to hear. Or Jesus gives John. Jesus says to John, yes, John, I am who you think but I'm different than you think, but ultimately I'm better than you think. I am who you think, I'm different than you think, but I'm better than you think. I'm not indifferent to injustice, but I am exceedingly gracious and patient. I haven't written off justice and said that's never gonna happen. I've just said it's not happening today. This is the year of the Lord's favor. There will come a, a day of judgment. But I've pushed that off. And the reason he pushed it off, we are told, the Apostle Paul tells us, is because God desires that all would be saved. And I know it's a hard verse for some people because it doesn't align with your theology, but that's scripture. God desires that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God is patient, Peter says. He waits to bring judgment because he wants to save as many as possible. And so Jesus' response to John is he's saying, basically, don't be offended by my grace. Don't be offended by my compassion for the world. And some of the very people that John thought would be chaff, some of the very people that John was thinking they're finally going to get theirs, those are the people who are turning and responding to Jesus, a Roman centurion. They were the oppressors, the tax collectors. They were the traitors, the Pharisees. They were the corrupt religious leaders. I mean, John had to be so eager to see these people finally brought before the judgment seat, and they weren't. But many of them turned and trusted in Jesus. Many of them repented. And Jesus is saying this is something we should celebrate. He's so committed to rescuing and redeeming people. He shows such grace. Now, grace is a great comfort when God shows it to us. It's confusing sometimes when he shows it to people we don't like. I mean, we all pray on some level or another, God, show me grace and give them justice. Amen. Those are our prayers. Give me grace. Give them justice. Forgive me. Punish them but we see again and again in the New Testament that God is so committed 
to rescuing and redeeming people from their sin, that he's willing to put his justice on hold. Or even better, better than that, more than that, he's willing to put his justice on his son. I mean, Jesus is so committed to saving people that he took the just judgment, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, the Roman centurions deserve because of theirs, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. He took all of that punishment upon himself so that he could proclaim good news to the sinful, to the broken, to the weary, to the worn down. So I was wrestling with this passage this week, and I find this a lot these days. I spend a lot of time in the Bible. It's my job, and I love it, and it's a privilege. But so often when I read the Gospels, Jesus, he's just on a different level. Like, I think I know, and I do know things. We can know things truly, absolutely, but he's just got a much bigger vision. His plan is to see heaven and earth united. That's what he's committed to doing. My vision is not nearly that big. And so I shouldn't be surprised when he does things that don't make a lot of sense to me. Should actually be grateful, even when it's hard. So the word of encouragement I want to hold before you. What Jesus teaches us about faith is, yes, he's who we think. He's who was promised in the word. But he's different and he's better. And he's calling John to believe those things. And then at the end, the last word to John is this, blessed is the one, when he finishes, who is not offended by me. Other translations will say, who does not stumble, who do not stumble over me. And I think this is a word, this is a, almost a beatitude, um, especially to older brothers. It's not so much a beatitude to prodigals. Prodigals tend to like the dad for his money, you know, what he can give them. It's the older brothers who really struggle. It's John who's served God faithfully. He's in prison and he's going to be beheaded. And Jesus has the power to stop it, but he's not stopping it because he's got a bigger plan. And Jesus responds. And it's a gracious response, but it's a double-edged response. It's hard. It's gracious. I want to leave you with Dale Bruner's interpretation of these words. He says, Jesus does not shame John by saying something like, and blessed is the person who never doubts if I am the Messiah. Words like that would have hurt John because doubt was exactly John's experience. Nor does Jesus here bless those who in discouraging situations glow with vital faith. Blessed are those who are flourishing in prison, unlike you, John. All such triumphal words would have been the worst possible pastoral counsel for John in the state. Instead, Jesus pitches his tune low, puts the cookie on a shelf that John can reach, and promises in so many words, and God bless you, John, if you do not throw the whole thing over, because I am a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. God bless you, John, if you know that I don't just love you and your sin, but I love the world and their sin, and I've come to rescue them from it. As we come to the Lord's table, the 
we celebrate. And this symbolizes for us the blessing and the judgment. The judgment fell on Jesus Christ when his body was broken so that we might be the recipients of the blessing, that we might be able to eat and to feast on his body that was broken for us. His blood was shed. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So his blood was shed so that we might drink and be reminded that we are saved by grace and grace alone and that our God is committed to reconciling heaven and earth. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to feast. If you're on fire for the Lord in this season of life, awesome. If you're in a place of real doubt, maybe you haven't taken the Lord's Supper in a while because you feel like, well, I've got these doubts I'm wrestling with. Don't run from the table with your doubts. Run to the table. Be reminded and be grounded in what Christ has done for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in the table, but you take part in Jesus Christ, who is showing exceeding graciousness and kindness in this day, but who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.